We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. My name is Jari Bolander. Welcome to the Entrepreneur Ethos Podcast. On this podcast, we're going to take a deep dive into the traits, values, beliefs, and skills of all sorts of entrepreneurs to learn how to build a more ethical, inclusive, and resilient world. Let's get started. Hey, everyone. I'm trying something new based on your feedback. Stay tuned to the end of the interview, where I'll give you some actionable insights that I learned from my guest. These insights are also in the show notes. As always, thanks for listening. Now, on to my guest for today, Dan Salehi, a patent lawyer who shares his observations about business growth, particularly about the new phenomenon of SPACs. Dan studied engineering in college, but decided to switch to law, entering the world of patent law. He became curious about the big picture of why businesses choose to build what they build. He gradually transitioned to help corporations close deals, but patent law remains an integral part of what he does. Dan explains that he never wanted to be one-dimensional, and he was always interested in understanding the bigger picture. In this episode, Dan provides his insider view of SPACs, Special Purpose Acquisition Companies, which are an alternative to the traditional route of going public. He also talks about why patents are an important part of building a business when done correctly. Some of the questions Dan addresses in this episode are, what are SPACs? Who are the key players? And how does it work? When should a company consider going that route? When might now be the optimum time to explore it? What purpose does a patent serve in building a business? 
When and how should you patent an idea? How do patents play a role in business growth? You should also know that Dan and I both worked at Ion Torrent and then Life Technologies when Ion got bought by them. And then Life got bought by Thermo Fisher. It's a long thing. So to all my Ion friends, I hope you enjoy this walk down memory lane. Now, let's get better together. Dan Salehi, welcome to the podcast. Good morning, Jerry. How are you? I am fantastic because you and I go back. We go back in the day. (laughs) (laughs) Back in the Ion Torrent days, which I hope a bunch of my Ion Torrent buddies slash Life Tech buddies slash Thermo Fisher buddies listen because uh, we're going to talk about some of the cool stuff we used to do back in the day. Um, And we're also going to talk about something that you're actively working on right now, which are these SPACs or SPACs, which have been in the news that are, you know, that's the reason why I wanted to have you on and and like explain this stuff as well as, you know, catch up on just, it's been almost seven, eight years, I think, (laughs) since we, since we worked together. Um, And, you know, you're a patent attorney, you have your own, you know, patent firm, you're working on a bunch of really cool stuff. But, you know, before we get into all of that, like I always like to say to all the guests, uh, why don't you tell us how you got to do what you're doing today? Sure, sure. It was uh, it, it was probably partly intention and partly luck. Uh, I always felt like uh, I went to engineering school like most, almost all patent lawyers and uh, decided early on that it wasn't for me. I loved the science part, but I didn't want to do science every day. So then uh, law presented itself, and I, I, I went in thinking that okay, I'm going to be a patent lawyer. And once I became a patent lawyer, uh, and it was a fantastic training because you see that company build up from this scientific point of view. Uh, but it was always like I'm missing a part, and that part was valuation. Well, what are, why are we building the product that we're building? What is the end goal? Now, for a large company, it's it's to sustain itself and continue uh, being a participant in the market. But for a small startup, it's much more uh, critical, and and it is not merely a tangential point to stay in business. Rather, it's do or die. So then IP became uh, interesting. But we're always patent lawyers. I think, by and large, are not trained to do valuation and think about the business part of uh, the objective. So then, opportunities came up, and uh, I managed to transition out of patent law and get more and more into the corporate side and the commercial side of deals. And that's really was another inflection point whereby I was able to see patents, a brand new light and see the purpose as, as a bigger, uh, as a, as a player in a bigger uh, gestalt of things. So uh, I say part of it was intense. I'd never intended to be one dimensional or two dimensional. And part of it was luck, just opportunities came up. And I, I, I truly believe that when you have, a goal in mind and you have some objective in mind and you put it out in your head, you create that image, if you will, your imagination causes something to change in the world. And that something um, brings about opportunities. And if, if you're awake and you're paying attention to your compass, um, the compass will lead you. So that was it. That's my, my short story. <laughs> yeah. Well, you've had a longer career than that, <laughs> but I appreciate, I appreciate brevity from a lawyer. You know, not not your, <laughs> not not y'all's profession's best thing. Well, I, lawyers I, and preachers, we get paid <laughs> by the by the word. Exactly. It's, I mean, I jest. I love 
I mean, I love my lawyer, right? I'm kidding. I, <laughs> Everybody I just, loves their lawyer. Everyone so loves their lawyer, until, <laughs> especially yeah, when you're when when you're in trouble. Um, but yeah, I mean, the thing that that I wanted to talk about is something that's been in the news lately, and it's this whole uh, SPAC thing. I guess it's a special purpose acquisition company or whatever whatever they're called. And what's really cool is that you know we hadn't talked in a while. You reached out on LinkedIn, and you're like, hey. I'm working through a couple of these right now and it would probably be really cool to talk about it. And I agreed because boy, I've been seeing this a lot in the news. I think this is last year was like a record for SPACs. I think this year, the first half of this year has been insane amount of, uh, you know, these things going on the market. And I know that the SEC is uh, starting quote unquote now to kind of like look into them a little bit more. So why don't you just give us like a quick primer on them, you well, know, and like, let's, let's just talk about it. Absolutely. I'll be happy to. So uh, I'll preface this uh, talk or this portion of it by saying that uh, I'm, I'm just starting to get involved in these because of my client's needs. Uh, so my perspective is that, that one of the a target acquisition company, not uh, an acquirer, not uh, the SEC attorneys who work on these deals and set them up, but I will uh, I'll present it in that manner. So I'll, I'll give you a, a Worms view of, of SPACs. <laughs> uh, as you pointed out correctly, it stands for Special Purpose Acquisition Company. So look, think, if you want to go public, traditionally, you would just go to an IPO, you would uh, spend about six or nine months of intensive internal and legal resources to set your company to make up reporting and identify the company and set it up and then go public. The problem was that was one, it was highly, uh, it was highly labor and cost intensive. It, was, it would take a long time. And even then on the day of the IPO, you could, depending on the market appetite, you could do very well uh, stock compounding or uh, you could do very poorly. So here you are, you spend a ton of money, ton, ton of money that you know, didn't have and borrowed leverage to spend this money. And then you would have an IPO and the IPO wouldn't work out. SPAC is, uh, has become a quite popular in the last two years, as you pointed out, possibly three. And I have a bunch of statistics and publications that come across my desk identifying different ones. Um, it's like an IPO, but sl slightly different. It cuts through the red tape of immediate SEC reporting requirement. It does have a lot of SEC requirement, in fact, but it's, it's a little bit different and a little bit less intensive, at least at uh, ab initio. So these special purpose acquisition companies, I want you to think of, a, of them as having three uh, key players. Really, it's more, but these are the key ones. One is the target company. The target company is typically uh, you know, a startup company who is at a, at a stage that's mature enough uh, to be a target of a SPAC acquisition. The other one, which is a big player, is a SPAC sponsor. The SPAC sponsor is typically, uh, I call it a shell company, it's really not a shell company, but promoters go and identify um, a segment that they want to invest in and they raise money. The funds raised could be from, from, from any of the appropriate sources that the SEC has identified. It could be funds, it could be private investors and so on. Well, when the sponsors um, identify, um, identify, they don't usually identify a target, but they don't spe specify the target company. When they raise this money, they have a time period by which they have to spend it. And my understanding is about two years. Now, after the two years, if they don't spend the money and acquire a company, they have to give that money back to the 
um, the, the financiers. So you got this SPAC sponsor who is looking and has a set time period that has to invest this money, otherwise give it back. Well, <clears throat> the, the uh, sponsors uh, and promoters make their money when they acquire a SPAC. So they have every intent, intent and every uh, opportunity to uh, bet on a target company. When, uh, and then the third party in this triangle is your underwriters who review uh, the process and help um, review it for the benefit of, of, of all parties involved in terms of valuation and so on and so forth. Now, in between, if you're a target company and you are looking at uh, going through a SPAC process, uh, what you do is the first first step is is to identify a venture bank banker, a VC, that would represent you. And the VCs as, uh, play a very specific role. Their job is to groom you and present you in a way that is most uh, profitable or most SPAC friendly. Uh, VC's job is also to work with the SPAC sponsors. So the VCs will have a list and there are a couple of publications I'm told that identify who has how much money and how long they have to spend. Naturally, you're going to lean towards a company, the SPAC sponsor that invests the most in your company and the sponsor who is willing to give you, you know, negotiate with you things that you like. For example, how does uh, the management survive? Um, what is, it, what is the exit strategy, so on and so forth. So there's a lot of details. And the VC basically try to co connect you, connect you to the target company, uh, which is hopefully someone who's going out uh, uh, by way of SPAC, that's an exit strategy, with one of those. Now, the better VCs will also identify other opportunities. For example, they may come back and say, look, uh, we think you're going to do well in the SPAC, but have you considered you know, doing uh, private equity rates? Have you considered around D or around E? Uh, the market has a great appetite right now for biotechnologies, and you're not in that sector. How about if we connect you with uh, you know, a, a joint venture or something that would raise you the funds that you need? So it's it's um, so one way that I was able to explain this to uh, my sixteen-year-old uh, was uh, SPAC is a lot like a real estate deal. <laughs> you have a house to sell, you got to go first find a broker, and that broker will help you uh, connect to the buyers. So in this analogy, the target company is your house. Um, the broker would be the VC that you, you connect with. And they make, by the way, they're very similar to brokers. They make their money on the back end. So they have every reason to groom you properly and position you properly because otherwise they won't make the money. And the SPAC sponsoring that analogy is the buyer who comes in. Um, so this is a, that's a very basic primer on SPACs. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've heard them called blank check companies. <laughs> and I don't know if that's 100% true or it's just for, you know, knuckleheads like me that are like, okay, now, you know, so you can explain it to your 16-year-old or your grandma or, you know, everyone else that can't understand this stuff. Is is that, is there some truth to that or is it just, that's just yes. an easier way to talk about it? Yes and no. There's There's been some crackdown. SEC starting to look at these very closely. Remember when I said you have, they have two years, uh, the sponsors have two years to spend the money. Let's say you're a sponsor, you've raised a billion dollars and you have to, you have, you're running out of that time. So if you go back and give this money back to the original investors, you're going to lose a lot of time and a lot of really money 
in, in, in having set this up. So you'll have every incentive before your window expires to invest this money in a company. Okay. So uh, the sponsors, the, the sponsor company, usually, or the, the SPAC sponsor, doesn't know when it's raising. Sometimes they do, but sometimes they don't know who the target company is. Um, in order for them to attract the most amount of money, they would promote it as one which, as a SPAC, which would garner a billion dollars worth of investment, and they would get that. And as the time goes by, if their original target, if they didn't have one, or if a target that they, they were pers uh, pursuing does not work out, they still want to invest this money. So to some extent, yes, there is room for over-exaggeration of the underlying valuation of the target company. There are internal systems, I have to say, the underwriters mm. get involved and uh, there's a pipe process, all of which will help identify the correct proper valuation. But in a majority of SPACs uh, that I've, I've looked at, and, and again, my, my experience is somewhat limited, the original valuation ends up being significantly higher than what it is six months down the road. That is not to say on IPO, you don't get the same thing. But, right, uh, right. Sometimes it seems IPOs to me that, that way, right? Yeah, it seems that you get a huge blip around the, 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 the SPAC's uh, opening day, and then uh, it just drops and gets to a steady state at some point, which is sometimes, and I would say possibly often, lower than the original. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. No, no, it's, it's, it's just so interesting because, so these have existed for a while. I mean, they have, they have. Um, so there, there's a confluence of event that's going on in the market right now. First and foremost, we have COVID. There's a lot of money in the market. Our tax laws uh, promoted uh, investment. Then we have COVID. So everything shut down practically for a period. And then after that, it started. And that money started to come back. A lot of it's coming back to biotech because biotech is right now, or, you know, red hot. Everyone wants to invest in it. And it is the fastest <laughs> way to money. It's not IPOs back. No, yeah, it's true. Because, I mean, there, there's been, um, they used to, well, they've referred to sometimes as shell companies. And I know <laughs> there's been nefarious schemes in the past where a mining company in Canada would like to buy your assets and da 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 because it's the same. It's like a reverse merger, you know, all these buzzword bingo things. But it, it is interesting to see how, as uh, as the world's changed and lockdown, and then all these other companies are just you know accelerating. Some of them are just going crazy because of covid like the opportunity is huge as we were talking before the time to build the time to generate new ideas and get ready for the you know for the uptick is during the downturn quote unquote during the i think you had there was a persian saying you said about turbulent waters is when you catch the fish right <laughs> that's right the, the 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 saying or the proverb goes as the best time to fish is when there's turgid or turbulent water fish yeah. can't see it you hook them quickly and painlessly yeah yeah um, I, I, in many ways I feel this is one of those times uh, because people are falling over themselves to invest, which is not a bad thing. It's a great thing from an entrepreneur. From my perspective, it's, it's fantastic. It's just having the right product at the right timing um, is, is, is the key. Um, but, you know, this doesn't, uh, you're right. The SEC is starting to look into these. They may, there may be additional regulatory hurdles that they would put on that would uh, make SPACs not as uh, feasible. Uh, Given where we stand right now, I think uh, VCs that I spoke with are 
super busy and I'm trying to set as many of these up and uh, close them as quickly as I could. Yeah. I mean, that was the thing that was really interesting. I mean, I'm sure you saw like a lot of the back in 2008, I think it was 2008 or 2001, the Sequoia deck, the Sequoia venture capital guys are like freaking out with good measure. Don't get me wrong. They're smart guys, but there was the kind of like cut, cut deep, cut big and cut deep or something and cut, no, cut right away, cut deep and cut right away because you're not getting any more money. Right. And that was, you know, a lot of entrepreneurs, a lot of companies failed during that time. And there's a great book called uh, the hard thing about hard things, which I think is Ben, Ben Horowitz, if I'm not mistaken, he, he talks about that. So probably it was 2000, 2001. And then the same sort of thing happened in 2008. And so when COVID happened and everyone was worried that it was, this was going to be 2000, 2001 and 2008 again. And then it turns out for whatever reason, all these venture capital guys got money to invest and the deals or there's a lot, tons of deals now, which I don't, I just, I guess I just don't get it or I get it and don't, or they finally realized <laughs> that things are going to happen. And I think you see that in this SPAC market as well. So. That's, that's absolutely correct. The, the hedge funds and, and, and the retirement pension plans, they have money. They always have. They always will. Uh, it's accumulation of every, all the little little guys like me and you, all of our money in our retirement plans. And they are looking for something more than 4% rate of return. They're looking for something more than 8% rate of return. And they want it to be steady. So because of that, that fuels an innovation of how are we going to connect that money with startups how can we evaluate, uh, create valuation for a startup that is sustainable? And how can we, you know, continuously guarantee nine and a half, ten and a half percent rate of return? Even in a market that's hampered by, you know, the, the bubble of 2001, the Great Recession of 2008, and the COVID pandemic of 2020. Yeah. No, I think this fundamentally things are going to change. And I'm, I'm actually really, well, one, optimistic that you know, entrepreneurship and creativity are, is going to accelerate more, and we're going to actually see a lot of these fundamental problems in the world being solved. I, I'm not doom and gloom like a lot of people about you know all the stuff about climate change is real and poverty and all that sort of stuff. But boy, like when we put our mind to something as as a society, as a world, we can fix it. I just Absolutely. think that's the case, and I think you see that when it comes to patents, right? You yes. know, like. I've, I think at ION may have had one or two patents, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. And I think you, a... I think you, I think you're the one that filed them for me. <laughs> I mean, no, it's, well, it's cool because it was like, you know, we're going to reminisce a bit. So if, if y'all don't know anything about ION Torrent, um, ION Torrent was one of the first companies to commercialize semiconductor sequencing. And Jonathan Rothberg, who uh, was an absolute genius. Uh, when it came to this stuff and we uh, you know, Dan was the IP counsel over there for a while. And I remember the uh, every, well, there was a big push to generate a lot of IP um, and we got incentivized to actually do that. We got incentivized to write disclosures. We got incentivized to, cause we were creating something literally from nothing. And what was super interesting about that process is that the, uh, when you um, have 
great ideas and a lot of smart people. And when I'm talking smart people, I'm not joking <laughs> when I say this because we had electrical engineers, mechanical engineers, surface chemists, biochemists, bioinformatics. I mean, we had every discipline you could think of in any sort of science, hard science, like just amazing amount of people. And I don't even remember how many patents ion torrent generated, but I remember like there wasn't a week that didn't go by that we weren't like innovating and inventing something brand new. <laughs> it was just insane. And, and, and I think that was one of the things that was really powerful about working there. Um, and especially what Jonathan would always say, which sticks with me to this day was he was like, you know, you can print money, but you can't print time. So if you can accelerate something and you can save time by spending money, it's the best bet you can ever have. And I, he put his money where his mouth was. And it was that, that is always stuck with me. And I'm just curious as a, not only a patent attorney who's, who's worked a long time in patents and innovation, but also this sort of SPAC kind of now this kind of taking that value that people created and monetizing it. How do you see that connection? Are these companies that you see or you're working with, do they have a pretty rich IP portfolio or do they have like, what, what's the kind of, how does it tie back to building intellectual property? Absolutely. Great question. That's actually a very fundamental question that you ask. And, and uh, I, I'm going to take a little bit of time answering that because your question inherently is, presupposes uh, some condition, market conditions and uh, uh, ideation conditions. So um, to use your reference with Ion Torrent, you're absolutely right. We, uh, it was, it was a, one of the largest, if not the largest acquisition at the time, uh, next generation sequencing, was not a household name. You know, many, many years ago, the government had agreed to put money into NIH to do sequencing for disease detection. That was a genome project. And this was a fruit of uh, the idea, really ingenious, to combine something that was biological with something that was digital, which is a semiconductor, taking advantage of Moore's law and be able to reduce uh, costs, make things simple and expedient to, to at least detect uh, portion of the human genome. Yeah. Uh, at the time, it was a three-quarter of a billion, $750 million acquisition, which was risky for the company who was acquiring it. But uh, the CEO and his staff did a phenomenal job selling this and identifying it and selling it. And uh, from the acquisition side, Jonathan had done a, a remarkable, remarkable job taking a concept, an idea, uh, you know, developing into concept and, and patch, packaging it and develop, really beta testing it. Uh, to completion. So uh, we saw a lot more of companies like that come on board uh, for a while. And um, it, 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 did, it, it just did everything right. I have to say it was, it was brilliant. It was um, a whirlwind. I mean, I, I mean, I remember that time and, you know, it was just insane. Not only the growth of all the people that were coming on board, but just the process. I mean, that was the first time. I mean, I've been at a company that that went public. I've been at a public company. Been at you know a couple of them. That was the first one where the acquisition, like that process, was. I mean, it 
every day, every hour, it sort of changed. <laughs> it was a, the acquisition was orchestrated wonderfully. It was, yeah, it was uh, by a group that had a uh, significant experience. I know that I was personally sequestered on campus uh, for sometimes seven days at a time. And my boss said, well, you don't need to go home. There's a hotel nearby. Just crash there and come back to work <laughs> you know, six hours later, which we did. And we had uh, morning report outs to one group of uh, C-level executive and an evening report. So in between you were busy and uh, either if you weren't sleeping or working. Um, it, it was phenomenally well run and, and well managed. Uh, certainly kudos to uh, to both companies, Jonathan's team and uh, uh, Life Technologies team uh, for, for managing and running this. It, it, it was well done. But uh, let me go back to your question. So let's, let's talk a little bit about Stealth to Spec, uh, what I call it. Stealth to spec process because all of these uh, incubator innovator companies start uh, predominantly as stealth, and they end up they hope to end up and I'm saying spec as an exit strategy but obviously there are other exit strategies for uh, as a, a, a startup company. Um, when Iron Torrent was acquired, I think their IP was a handful. It was certainly was not something that. I would have attached a dollar value of that magnitude too if I was just looking at it purely as an uh, as an IP lawyer and saying, well, you know, you've got a bunch of pending application and one patent is issued and it's really not that great. However, the valuation goes far behind beyond patents. And this is a pet peeve I have with traditional patent attorneys. Every single patent attorney you speak with tells you that, hey, hire me, I can write the best damn patent. The problem is when you step away from patent law and you deal as a commercial business person, you don't look at them as a one-off. They are an aggregate and they serve a very specific purpose. And that purpose has to satisfy and align with the company's larger uh, plans. So if you take a company like Iron Tour and say, well, you know, based on their IP portfolio, they weren't worth three quarter of a billion, they were worth maybe, I don't know, half a million, maybe two million. Yeah, totally, totally. Um, because that that just doesn't sound well. But you look at it in retrospect, and it really wasn't uh, because of the, I, I mean, it was because of the IP, but it wasn't because of what had issued. So let's break that down a little bit more. Uh, you got brilliant scientists, you got great engineers, you have very dynamic people. And, and, and I'm going to make a side note here. Some, one of my engineering professor once said that to me. So whenever you put a brilliant group of people together like that, it will never last more than a couple of years. <laughs> and we saw that firsthand with I. Oh, yeah, we did. Oh, we could talk about that for hours. <laughs> so you bring these brilliant group of people together. Totally and brilliant. They're, yeah, they're innovating. They're excited to be at work every day. They're creating something that didn't exist. How do you, how do you capture that? Well, you do that with patents, ideally. But... It comes a question of cost. It comes a question of priority. And if it's a question of hiring another two people or not hiring two people and filing two more patents, I'm always leaning towards hiring other people. Oh, yeah, totally. totally. So um, that is not to say I'm, I'm against filing. I think that it has to be done strategically and it has to be done with a good blueprint that lasts, not, lasts beyond the you know, first phase of the startup. Right, right. And, and totally. there's some tricks that patent lawyers have that can can accommodate that. Yeah, no, agreed. Agreed. I think that the best use of patents is more of the, what I used to call or like the picket fence. I mean, it, they're mostly, there's some companies that use them as an offensive weapon 
But typically, I think of it as a defensive picket fence where it just makes it harder for people to kind of compete against you. Because the, what, what was brilliant about Ion Torrent was we were going so fast and we were innovating rapidly that it was all about execution. Like no one could touch us. And I remember at the time, our big nemesis was Illumina. I mean, everyone That's knows right. Illumina, you know, they're whatever. And they, and I remember the, the, the way we positioned the sequencing, you know, system and unit is that you could, it was a handheld bench top sequencing unit. And it was true. You could literally carry it around the lab if you wanted to. Not while it was running, but you could carry it around the lab. <laughs> Where Illumina, you needed a vibration table and it's this huge, massive thing, right? And I remember what what was really the, I think the defining factor in why Ion Torrent, the, the story that, that Jonathan told and the rest of the team, I mean, and they had some fantastic people that just sort of knew that writing this Moore's Law semiconductor sequencing narrative and then backing it up with, you know, patents. And again, you're right. We, I mean, it, it, we, we always would just, you know, write disclosures and then they would be pulled into patents and there was a process and a plan for that. But it was really like, we would just be announcing record after record after record on the sequencing because the whole goal was to do this thousand dollar genome, right? Which was the, was the X prize and the Holy grail of all this stuff. And I remember from, from a PR point of view, um, <laughs> they got a bus, they got a tour bus, a rock band tour bus and they put ion torn on the side of it and they put a bunch yeah. of sequencers in this bus and they drove it to all these colleges. Or, they went to it, Miami for it, some, some big presentation. Yeah. Some huge conference. And they're literally sequencing in a bus. Right. And you may think, Oh, why do you care? Blah, blah, blah. Well, in reality, sequencing, you know, DNA sequencing is a really powerful tool for diagnostics and understanding disease and all this sort of stuff. And it's just not accessible. It's, it, it's, it's expensive and hard to do. And there's a lot of things and they were trying to really make it a lot easier. And, and I just remember like the bus tour, <laughs> like now that's genius. Right. And I, I don't remember who came up with that. Maybe it was Wes or, or man, it, it or was ingenious, or... and one of the <laughs> one of the greatest accomplishment it did. It and probably took, Jonathan too. Uh, sequencing and next generation sequencing. Yeah, into a, it made it a household thing. Yeah, I mean, you, you now talk to kids, and they go, "Yeah, yeah, yeah." You can sequence a genome. You can see what you have. You have to treat it. Well, that was a, it. Was something that PhD sci level scientists in molecular biology would discuss. It wasn't everyday word that you threw around. So yeah, yeah. Uh, it was enormously successful on that front as well. Um, I want to talk very quickly about best use of patents because you brought it up and you correctly pointed out about the white picket fence, uh, about the defensive strategy. Uh, patents serve a, a couple of different purposes. And, and I wanted to add for the benefit of your audience, some of these purposes. Um, generally, when I look at them, they are offensive and defensive, but they also have the job of creating uh, Value in the search in the sense that you identify at least for a period of time what you have created. So think of ideation process. The next one is reducing it to practice, which is you know conceptualizing it, and then the last one is recording it. So patents in that last step of recording. Uh, we use them for defensive purposes, just exactly as you identified as a picket fence. Don't attack us. We have something but we most importantly use them as offensive weapons. And that offensive-defensive play 
um, when you get to the more in-depth study of it, uh, has has different permutations. So not necessarily for uh, Iron Torrent, but for clients, we have been in a situation where we're uh, fighting over uh, technology. And there are several reasons you can put some of your own patents on the table. You can go acquire somebody else's patents and use those to uh, offensively attack or counterattack someone who's attacking you on a patent front. So there are all sorts of things uh, that, that one can do. Um, because of that, I'm, I'm going to go back to my original port, point that don't spend all your money on IP because if you do get into a fight <laughs> and you do have some money behind, you can always go and acquire somebody else's patent and fight with those. Yeah, yeah, no, it, it's it's a good point. And I'm glad, I'm glad you brought that up because a lot of times I, I talk to entrepreneurs and they're worried about their IP and they're like, okay, when should I file a patent? How should I file a patent? You know, and and it's interesting because there is a lot of there is a wide variety of people have different opinions on this. And of course, you're a patent attorney, so there's the legal aspect of it, and there's the experiential stuff. Um, and it, I think it really does depend on what you're building and what you're innovating on. You know, if you're a SaaS company, chances are your IP portfolio is probably going to be a little thin. But if you're a hardware company, a biology, you know, biotech company you know, something where it's like super hard and you're spending, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars to develop it, you know, chances are there's a, clearly there's some patentable stuff there. And I think it's directly proportional to the amount of effort that you put in. Um, and I think, I yeah. think it's, it's interesting because that is always this real, like the valuation of a company getting back to that, like that's a hard, always a kind of a hard thing to do. I had someone on on the podcast that talked about that's what their job was is to evaluate companies. You know, mostly uh, he evaluated companies like <clears throat> more traditional companies, but he also had ideas about how venture capital people are evaluated and whatnot. And we had a really good rule of thumb that you know every funding round a VC wants to double the evaluation. I'm like, oh, that's a good rule of thumb, right? You know, it may be a little squishy, but that's generally a good, you know, good, good way to go. It's a good goal. Yeah. For, for SPACs, um, getting back to those, how, how, how are they really evaluated? Is it this traditional metrics or is it sort of like how good the hype job is? Uh, it's a combination of both. It appears uh, there is a part of SPAC that is, uh, it is a hard study of your IP portfolio. They will, uh, the underwriters will demand. And uh, I, I think SPAC, SPAC sponsors and the VCs set you off for that. Uh, a portion which requires you to point out what is the product, the box that you're putting on someone's table, what portions of it are protected, what patents are there. And then on the underwriter side, they will take that data table and review it and verify that what you say is correct. Now, if you have a gap in the IP, let's say <clears throat> your secret sauce is to do X, Y, Z, and there is no IP covering that, you better have an explanation. For example, this is a trade secret and we didn't think we want to file on this. Or that we have um, we have covered it with these three patents or whatever combination of patents. So th there is a backfill, and I think a smart uh, underwriter would look for that. The other thing is is just the mechanical stuff. Okay, you have a bunch of patents. Who who wrote them? Are they assigned to the company? You know, and there is a list that I always use and go back to using as a literally a, a, a Excel spreadsheet that identifies the IP, identifies how it uh, covers what. And, you know, on that list, I also have, are there assignments? Are there declarations? Just mechanical things that patent lawyers know very well. 
Um, because at the end of the day, we're not selling brick and mortar companies. We're selling idea companies that hopefully would uh, would survive regardless of where they're located. Uh, another way of looking at this, uh, we look at IP, we talked about IP monetization. When you're getting financing, uh, it slowed down a lot, but we used to get a lot of financing from China. And with Chinese investors, it was important to say, look, we got, uh, you know, we got the same IP in China. And it was something that they would check off their list that, okay, this wow. company did due diligence. Now, not everything was patented in China. Obviously, right. you go for key fundamental ideas. Right, right, uh, right. But at least you could show them that, you know, we're proactively thinking that the Chinese market could be a, at least a 20 or 30, maybe even more portion. Yeah. Now, when you start dealing with outside of biotech, we talk about uh, SaaS softwares as services, and you deal with hardware, especially uh, monitors or electronics, which have a very short lifespan, then your strategy has to change and say, okay, you know what? <clears throat> we may not want to be, for example, in Canada as active as we are in Taiwan, because Taiwan is the world's largest semiconductor manufacturer. So let's divert the funds for you know, IP funds from, let's say, Canada to Taiwan to protect that market or to China because the investors are coming from China. So all these things uh, come in. There are... <laughs> A lot of it is just experience <laughs> that you pay for in time. <laughs> <laughs> I was wondering why you're, yeah, why are lawyer fees so high? Well, I, it's like the same reason why, you know, a plumber takes 10 minutes to fix something and charges you a grand. And they're like, it only took you 10 minutes. Yeah, well, it took me 25 years to figure out what, <laughs> what knob to turn. And I'm not saying lawyers, that lawyers and plumbers are the same, although, you know, well, very similar, <laughs> very similar. Well, I mean, but it's the, it's, it's, you know, the point is that experience is worth a lot. And that's, I think, the real critical thing, especially if you're going to do a, if you're going to do a SPAC, you know, since they're so new, relatively new, right? Like at least the current incantation of it. Are there any advice that you would give entrepreneurs about like, okay, look, this is what to work, look at. I know you're, you're doing a couple right now and you may not have all the answers. And of course, you know, disclosure, this isn't legal device, Dan's not your lawyer, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> but I mean, anything that you've learned that you can be like, hey, look for this, you know, just make sure you just think about it this way. Absolutely. Uh, I, I'll be happy to, to, to talk about that. Uh, look, your exit strategy is still, you, you need an exit strategy. Nobody's building a company to, to perpetually be a stealth startup. So when you build, when you start, and let's break it to three phases, okay, you're, you're stealth, the second phase is you're no longer stealth, but you are now in uh, starting to sign code joint development or starting to get uh, grant money. So you're a little bit more public and, and doing maybe finance uh, past uh, you know, family and friends around you doing some fundraising. And the third stage is when you're ready to exit. So when you're in the first stage, uh, all the same principles apply. Uh, spend money wisely, spend it appropriately, have a concept. Uh, when I say have a concept of what you're going to patent and what you're going to protect, do it with some level of, uh, of freedom because you know every single startup I work with, on you don't know uh, year three what part, what aspect of your invention is going to be hot and uh, monetizable. So do it with some, don't build a straight jacket. Don't spend, you know, 50 to $200,000 on something very specific, unless you are certain and no one's certain of what happens three years from now. 
when we get to the second stage where you're doing a little bit more, um, you're not stealth anymore, but you're doing a little bit of financing, you're talking to investors and you have a pitch deck. At this point, you want to have um, a family of applications that are targeted to what you are pitching. So if you go back to the first stage, I said, you know, create IP that's a little bit broad. Um, I call them omnibus applications. In second stage, you kind of narrow those down. You get the priority that you want, but you are narrowed a little bit. And then the third stage is when you're prepping for an exit, whether it's an IPO, uh, it's a SPAC, or uh, you are now <clears throat> at a place to exit by selling to a much larger company, um, Life Technologies sold to Thermo Fisher. At that stage, uh, you want to make sure that your IP, that checklist that I talked about, is, is complete, that I have all the uh, all the I's dotted and the T's crossed. I have my IP. I, I know what covers what product and how I can I can defend how can how I can show that I build a picket fence around my idea. So in, in a nutshell, um, that that's how you ought to look at it. Um, now, each stage has ingredients that to do or dies that you have to pay attention to and you have to do it critically and vigilantly. If you take your eye off of it, it's going to go sideways. And for that, uh, I would suggest that you speak to, uh, uh, we certainly, my, my law firm, Spectrum IP Law does it, and uh, there are many other firms. You look at the experience of the attorneys, you look at what they've done and uh, what has built up that experience, and then you go from there. So true, so true. Dan, really appreciate catching up and all the info and the reminiscing of the old good old days since you know <laughs> it was awesome it keeps me alive it keeps me wanting to wanting to do this yeah exactly and, well no uh, it's it's so cool to see so this this is the thing that's really cool about that stuff is like that technology and what ion torrent did and now i think you're at four catalyzer now helping them out another Jonathan company um, for catalyzer and, and yeah. many more, many yes. more. Right. And um, the, the thing that's cool about it is that stuff that the technology, the innovation, I mean, it's going to, you know, it's going to change people's lives. It's going to save lives. It's probably already saved lives. I mean, that's the beautiful I, thing about working on this stuff. I, I love, I love for catalyzers uh, motto, come help us put a dent in the universe. I yes. just love that. Yes. I mean, you're yes. doing great every day, but you're also evolving humanity in a way for the, in, in many ways for the better. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I, I think this is the future and yeah. we're doing it now. Totally agreed. And thanks again for your time. Stay safe. And uh, my pleasure. Thanks again, Dan, for being on the show. It was so cool to talk about the old ion life technology days. So as promised, here are some actionable insights that I learned from Dan. First, prepare your exit strategy, the way you will move out of the startup phase. Protect your ideas with patents and trademarks. Spend your money wisely and appropriately. You don't have to patent everything, but should have a picket fence approach where your patents have the broadest idea they can get. Narrow down your priorities. Prepare a pitch deck and start fundraising. Ensure your ideas are protected through patents since investors will ask. Prepare for your exit by exploring opportunities like going IPO or SPAC. You can also look at getting acquired, like Ion did. So there you have it, what I learned from Dan. Thanks again for listening.
Thanks for listening to the Entrepreneur Ethos Podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did creating it. My hope is that you learned something that can make you a little bit better. If you enjoyed the podcast, please do share it with friends and review it on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. You can also join my email list by visiting theentrepreneurethos.com to get my thoughts on what I'm doing to get better, as well as what I'm working on. You can also pick up my book, The Entrepreneur Ethos, if you want to learn the traits, values, and beliefs that I think we need to build a more ethical, inclusive, and resilient entrepreneur and, frankly, world community. Feel free to follow me on Twitter at The Daily MBA and let me know if you have any questions or recommendations for a guest you'd like me to talk to. Also, drop me a note if you try anything we talked about on this or any other episode. I'd love to hear what's working for you. Until next time, keep getting better. It's happening daily. We're being conned by the institutions we used to trust. The mainstream media is distracting us with meaningless headlines instead of focusing on the harsh realities facing American families. Time is short before something big happens, and that's why so many folks are preparing. They're becoming self-reliant by investing in emergency food storage from My Patriot Supply. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure four-week emergency food kits for each member of your family. Each kit contains tasty breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Save $50 on each four-week food kit you purchase. Plus, get free shipping on Ready Hour four-week emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour foods. At My Patriot Supply, you can also get solar power generators, water filtration units, heirloom seeds, and survival gear. Order by 3 p.m., and your unmarked boxes ship the same day. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com